0: welcome to the concierge cpa i'm jackie meyer founder of the concierge accountant program and tax Ben iq software this is a podcast for accounting firm owners and influencers who are pursuing world-class service We discuss their path to excellence, their daily habits, and what influences them and their work. We believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world. Stick around till the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of the Concierge CPA. I have the a wonderful Kelly Phillips-Er with me today, and she didn't know it, but she's one of my mentors. I love your tax technical writing. You have been all over the place with Bloomberg, Forbes. You've been part of a best-selling book. But what I love about your writing is that you make it so relatable and so easy to understand. And that's what we need in this crazy world of ours, where we don't need more technical jargon all over the place. So welcome, Kelly. I'm so glad to have you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. And I know you're back in the practice of law, so let's hear all about that.
1: Yeah, so anybody who follows me on social probably knows that I'm a mom. That's something I talk about a lot. And I say that off the top because I think it's really important sometimes In the practice to remind people that we're people, right? Like we're not just number crunchers or, you know, reading briefs and citing things. We have lives too. And I think that's really important because I think that reassures clients, potential clients, that we understand where they're coming from. And like that we understand that everybody has these issues. Everybody needs planning. Everybody gets in a jam. So I'm a mom. And my kids actually grew up in my law firm. We used to have an office down the street from their school and they would come after school. And we even had little business cards printed up that said office kids, which they loved. And my middle daughter, who I'm convinced is going to be an attorney someday, actually set up a competing practice in our lobby. She put a little poster up offering advice for a nickel which is a little lower than my available rate. I started out actually at other firms, decided I wanted to have my own firm and ran my own firm with my husband for years. A couple years ago, he switched. The pandemic changed a lot. I think people found that a lot in their practice, right? Like it impacted the way we practice, the way we look at the world, the way that resources are available. So he actually joined his counsel of another friend who wanted me to switch over and I couldn't bring myself to do it because I'm... Uh, bit of a control freak and I like servicing my clients the way that I do. But then I had the opportunity, like I talked to them and they were like very encouraging about the fact that they wanted me practice the way that I've always practiced, which felt like a really wonderful fit. So I went back to practice the law, like on a pretty regular basis. And unfortunately that made my like at Bloomberg more complicated because their audience obviously at law firms and accounting firms So I chatted back with Forbes and asked, I wanted to keep writing. And they said, sure. So now I'm doing both again. I am practicing law and writing. And I love that because I think sometimes we get pigeonholed, right? We think we can only do one thing or, you know, you're a CPA or you're a lawyer, you're an EA or you're a writer and that's all you do. And I think it's important not only to remember that, yes, we have families and things like that, but we also have lots of different talents and we can use them in lots of different ways. I'm back to doing what I've always loved doing, which is writing and practicing. Awesome. So
0: how did that first come about in regards to, did you just randomly submit an article to Forbes or some publication or did they approach you because you were this amazing? Okay, yeah. So let's hear about that.
1: So the story actually started, when my husband and I started the law firm because we were on a shoestring budget But my husband was a bit of a techie. And back in the day, there weren't out-of-the-box websites like you have now. You'd have to build your own if you were a law firm. And the cost to do that was crazy expensive. But my husband built our website, which, again, people weren't doing that in the early 2000s. They just didn't. And so he built our website. And I was posting client updates on the back end, like going in just if something happened that I felt like clients needed to know about, I would go and I'd put it on the website And that was really tedious. And it was when blogging was really beginning to take off. And I'm like, oh, there's software for this? I started doing my writing on, I think it was Blogspot initially. And I eventually became WordPress. And back in the day, I didn't think anybody was reading. And then I found out people were reading. I got a few nice nominations for Best tax Blog and Best Law Blog. And again, I thought my dad was in the audience, but apparently not. And I had written a piece, and I remember the piece to this day. I had written a piece about, there were two tax amnesty programs in our area. So I was in Philly at the time. So there was one in Pennsylvania and one in New Jersey. And New Jersey's advertisements for the program were very much what you would expect for an amnesty type situation. It was basically like, pay your past debts and get current and let's move on. That was pretty much their message, right? Pay, let's move on. And then Pennsylvania, my home state, took a very different approach. And I'll never forget the ad that kind of triggered this article that I wrote. It was back when Google Maps was just becoming like a thing, right? And so they had like this satellite view of a house and this ad. And they click with the sound effects. And it's like, we know where you live. And then they're like, we will find you. And then they said, but you know, why don't you pay up first? So it was a scare tactic. And interestingly, New Jersey had a much more successful rate with their amnesty program than Pennsylvania did that year. And so I wrote this article about how I firmly believe, and I still do, that most taxpayers are honest people. Most taxpayers want to do the right thing. Most taxpayers who get behind, even if they got behind for, you know, willful reasons, they don't want to stay behind. And scaring them about the outcome isn't helping, like the anxiety that they already feel, right? So I wrote this article and Janet Novak called me. She's an editor at Forbes and she's, can we run your piece and we'll do it for free? And one of my friends who is a writer is, oh no, you never do anything for free. So I ran it with Forbes and it did well. And they asked me if I wanted to become a contributor. And that's how that happened. I was contributor for a while. I became a staffer, went to Bloomberg, back at Forbes. So I was really lucky but it's funny, as I get older, I remind myself, again, because my am a parent, may see how my kids pick up on stuff that I do. I want to remind them and other, especially young professionals, that it's also okay to say I was good at it, right? There's this idea that we like to say, I was just really lucky. It fell into my lap. I was really lucky that the opportunity came. And I'm very grateful that it came. Also, I think I was good at it and I got better at it, which is also the fun part, right? Getting better at doing something you really like to do. So that's how that happened. I did not submit something it came to me, but I had been doing stuff before.
0: There's a lot to unpack there, but I think a few key things you said that I think are really cool are the fact that you had a friend that knew what like, hey, don't do this for free, right? Because we all need friends like that. There is so much we give away for free. And even the other day, you know, we were talking before the podcast about some mental health initiatives and AICPA, and I was texting with a friend about, we do something about this with the ANCPA and she's like well I'm tired I'm not getting paid for this stuff but I'm like you know the great point. So you always have to keep yourself in check of I am worth something here and I should get paid and I know that kind of went on a tangent but just had to throw
1: that in there. Oh no I agree with you. So what I did because I didn't get paid for that but I think it's important because it's a cost analysis right? It's something we do all the time in our own practice. Why not do it in your own life? Is the thing that I'm going to do for free going to have a payoff. And it doesn't have to be a payoff in money. It could be like, am I going to feel better afterwards? Am I going to help somebody? I agree. Like everybody needs a friend that's going to say like, take a step back before you answer and let's think about what this looks like.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then I love that you went on to say, I wasn't just lucky. I was good at it because yes, our kids need to hear that. We worked our butts off to get to where we are and they need to understand that it's not just
1: easy peasy, right? Exactly. I think we see a lot of this, especially on social media now, where we think somebody became famous overnight or we think that someone became important overnight. And I think it's really important for everybody to see the path that you take, because no matter what level of success that you ultimately want to achieve, I think you need to understand how to get there. And I think that by pretending you just got there one day is not helpful to people who come behind you.
0: Sure. Okay. So you mentioned this first article they picked up. What would you say is like your favorite article of all time or topic of all time that you get to talk about? That's a tricky question.
1: So one of my favorite features is Ask the Tax Girl, where people would write in and ask me questions and I get answer them because I do feel like people are scared to ask questions that sometimes they need. The answer to, and not in a here's necessarily what you do, but here's how you find the help you need. Because I think a lot of times people just don't know where to ask or where to turn. So I loved that series. One of the things I'm most proudest of that I did was when during the pandemic, when the stimulus checks were coming out, the initial batch that went out was not auto-generated for veterans and seniors. This greatly irritated me because I was getting so much mail. I was literally getting hundreds of emails a day, largely from people who were really struggling, because a lot of the people who needed resources during the pandemic were older seniors and veterans. And my brothers are both ex-military, so I feel really strongly about helping the veteran community. And so I started writing a lot, and I started complaining a lot. And I wasn't the only person, but I think there were a few of us that were shouting really loudly. I did get messages from people who were in positions to change that. And it did get changed. And i love get, especially in the profession, when we can shine a light on something that needs to be changed, and then it happens, right? And it's not necessarily any particular person that drives that forward, but it is part of an effort to Say, hey, look at something that's happening that should not be happening and let's see how we can fix it. And I think the profession is really good about that. And and we do that quite a bit. But that was a series of articles that I was particularly proud of because, you know, there was change as a result of it.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I remember that article and your interaction about that on Twitter and stuff like that, which she's under at tax girl, by the way, there. That's super cool. Let's see, speaking of veterans, if you're really into that, I recently met a new company called Tax Titans, and they're bridging the gap of tax prep services and training up veteran spouses to be tax preparers. So check into that. Listeners, check into that. They're pretty amazing, and I love their mission. Now, who would you say had been your like greatest mentor or influencer as you got into this crazy field? And
1: what did you get into this field? So the tax court was an accident. When I went to law schools, I'll jump back. When I was growing up, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I am a first-generation college student. None in my family had graduated from college before. Especially women didn't go to college from my town. And people know, I've talked about this before, but my grandfather didn't speak to me for a number of years when I got accepted to college. He felt like I was wasting taxpayers' money which is ironic because I was paying my own way. But there's still a lot of that in communities. I know there's still a lot of this notion that your destiny is chosen for you, right? And so I was originally going to be a teacher. I was going to teach fourth grade social studies. I love liberal arts and social studies and geography. And through a series of events, ended up at law school and hated litigation, like hated it. I had this new court appearance that went really terribly. And just to get out of that, I signed up for this random tax course. It was not an intro tax course. It was like an intermediary. The professor, Nancy Nauer, thought she was fantastic, followed her, so just kept taking classes that either she taught or she recommended. And at the end of the law school, she and a couple other folks said to me, I, they felt like I should get my master's of law in tax. So I did. And ironically, right before I was graduating with my LLM, the dean called me and they're like, you're missing a requirement. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like what? And they said, this is the last semester. And they said baby tax, which was intro to income tax. And I had never taken it because it just sort of followed. But it was a requirement. My very last semester or whatever, I was taking baby tax. But I interned with the IRS which was fantastic. Janice was my supervising attorney. I really loved watching her and how she interacted with people and loved that even on the IRS side, it was all about people. I got to do an audit, which was incredibly cool. So I just started kind of following. I didn't know what I was doing. So I just went. If somebody said, why don't you do X? I'm like, honey, why not? So I just kept going. And my mother thought that I would come home at some point. I'm from North Carolina. And she thought that this was a phase, right? Like they all did. And I got a job at a small practitioner in Southern New Jersey doing a hide net worth tax planning and estate planning for folks there. There are a lot of people who I looked up to and thought were fantastic and gave me good advice that changed depending on where I was in my career, which I think is important to always look for new people. And Janet, who I mentioned, she was my first editor. She's my editor again, which is very gratifying because I love that she has faith in my work and she makes me a better writer by far. And at Bloomberg I worked with great people. Rachel Daigle was my editor Leon and she was also amazing, and the group that I worked with was amazing. So it's hard to pick one or two people, but I will do a quick shout-out. Back in the day, when I first started blogging, there were a whole lot of tax bloggers that were doing non-technical work. There were a lot of very technical pieces, and there were a lot of academics. But when blogging was first becoming a thing in the tax world, there weren't a lot of us, but two people that I want to mention that were doing it, that weren't academics, were Kay Bell, who still writes. She does Don't Mess with Taxes. And it's funny because when I first started, again, didn't know what I was doing, especially because law is so adversarial. I think I believed that, you know, the people that were the other writers were going to be my competition and they were not. They were lovely and supportive. And I learned a lot from both of them. And also Joe Kristen and I get Peter Riley. There are a lot of people in that space that are just really good people who are always willing to help. And I think that's why I love what I'm doing and why I want to keep doing what I'm doing, because it's a really good place to be. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So my grandpa and uncle were attorneys in this little town called Seguin, Texas. And my mom wanted to become an attorney, but her dad told her to become a teacher instead. And she did become a teacher. She was number one in her high school and college classes. She could have gone on to be who knows what. Honestly, teaching is a wonderful profession, but it wasn't like, I don't think it was ever really her heart. And it was sad to see that she didn't get to express that. So I think that's really cool that you were able to do that. And kudos to all the other women out there that went for their dreams, even if their family disowned them. So we've all been through life's challenges or ups and downs. I'd like to ask guests one particular challenge you might have been through in your life that you learned a really good lesson and that is important to share, get the word out. Can you think of anything like that?
1: Oh, tons. Yeah, I think some of it are cliche, right? Like I was in a car accident that made me think about the world differently afterwards. You know, there's a lot of those kinds of things. So I went to residential high school. One of the things about going to is a science and math shout out to my fellow North Carolina SMers. But I had a friend who was an attorney. And it was a few years ago when I was really struggling with this idea of what next, right? It was around the pandemic. Our firm had grown really quickly. And then it wasn't fun anymore because I was managing and I didn't want to manage. I wanted to practice. And so that was hard. So I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But I also had three kids. And I carry a lot of student debt with me from paying for my school. And I didn't want them to have that. So I was struggling. You know, it's really easy for people to say, follow your dreams. We all have people to feed and bills to pay. And so sometimes it's not quite that easy, right? So I was trying to figure out what to do. And I had the opportunity to do something that I think would not have been what I needed to do ultimately, but it was going to pay me a lot. And so I was struggling with what to do. And I had been emailing my friend, actually messaging on Facebook, my friend, and he made a ton of money. He actually was a criminal defense attorney, he made a ton of money representing some not so great people, which he, he was very open about. And I don't mean like you're run of the mill, not so great people. And very suddenly he got sick and he went into the hospital for heart problems. He got SARS and he passed away and it wasn't even 50 And it was really shocking to me. And it was also a really interesting timing because it made me really sad. He has, you know, he has a kid that was just going into college and and his last few messages to me were how much he didn't like what he was doing. That actually made a real impact on me because I don't want that. I didn't want that to be my life. And I didn't want my kids to see that. As I mentioned, I had a lot of people saying no to me growing up. And I didn't want my kids to think that having a nice car was more important than being happy. And so that was a really interesting moment for me in terms of trying to resort my priorities and remember what was important to me and why I do what I do and what I like and what I don't like and what I wanted to change. And I think that kind of set the next phase of me ultimately ending up at White and Williams' council and going back to boards. There was a lot of loss in that period of time, especially around the pandemic. I had a lot of friends that either lost people or that we lost. And not all of them related to COVID, but it was just a string of events. And it did make me think about the world a lot differently. I think that would be it. It wasn't a big career moment or anything, but it was a, what am I doing for the rest of my life? Yeah. Yeah,
0: for sure. I can definitely identify with that. And it's something that you have to be reminded of a lot, especially with people in the law or accounting profession. We tend to become these workaholics and you sigh so easily of. Uh, what's truly important until something major happens. At the end of the day, no one cares if you filed their taxes by 415, but they're going to care if you, you know, took good care of your kiddos, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Now, what's common myth about tax law or finance that you wish more people would
1: understand? Oh, but if you mess up, you're screwed. This idea that if you make a mistake, it will haunt you for the rest of your life. I got an email the other day. Somebody had not filed the return. I'm not kidding. Someone had not filed the return and they asked me if the IRS would take their house. And I think there's a lot of fear, right, still out there. And I'm a fixer. That's part of what I do. I started as a planner, but in my later years of practicing, I'm doing more fixing. And I think that's the biggest myth, right? Like, almost anything can be fixed. Some requires a little more work than others. Some of the consequences can be a little more complicated than others. But you can fix everything when it comes to tax. If you haven't filed, if you filed the wrong thing, if you claimed head of household at the same time that your husband did, like, all these things can be fixed. I think that's probably the biggest myth that I see is that. And then I would say a close second on the financial side, this is something that that used to really bug me. And I'm always the voice at Ford's complaining a little bit about it. And then they're always reminding me that who our audience is. But because of the way I grew up, because I grew up with not a lot of money, and that's probably even an overstatement, there was definitely not a lot of money. I grew up believing that you could only invest if you had a lot of money to begin with. My mom used to say, that's how the rich stay rich, right? And so for years, I believed, and I've come to find out a lot of people believe this, that they believe that if you don't have extra resources, that you shouldn't plan for your financial future. So there's a lot of people who believe that if you don't have $1,000 to put in an IRA, you shouldn't open an IRA. And, and I just want to like, tell these people, like, no, put $25 away. If that's all you have, put it away. If that's all you can pay down towards your debt to make so that, you know, life gets better later, pay down that money now. I think that we get sucked into these headlines where somebody's here's how I paid off $150,000 in debt. I stopped drinking a $10 latte every day. And I'm like, that's not why you're in debt. And you're not helping people because, and you know, there's always the guy who's like, I took my $3 cup of coffee and invested it and made a million dollars. And that's awesome. If it worked for him, it doesn't work for most people, but that still shouldn't mean that you shouldn't try to do something that's manageable. So I think that the other thing is this fear that people have that they can't move forward if they don't have a lot. And I think that's not a good mindset. There's a lot that you can do all along the way.
0: Yeah, one step at a time, right? Instead of having that of these big feats. I mean, you could say that about a lot of things that we try to accomplish professionally or personally. A lot of people have that all or nothing mindset. But instead, it's like take that one tiny step today and then take one more tomorrow. I guess Atomic Habits is all about that, right? They say like one tiny step today leads to like semi-600-something
1: later. In your everyday life, it's the same idea that Admiral McRaven has that very famous speech that became a book that he gave at Texas at the commencement speech where he says, make your bed. He gives you like a series of steps and he talks about making your bed. And when I heard... About it. I thought it was like cheesy until I listened to the speech and then I read the book and it's so insightful because he's saying, like, if you make your bed, then that's one thing you've accomplished. So later when you're like, I haven't done anything all day, you're like, but I have. And it's the same kind of idea. Yeah. Like just doing one thing makes you feel better about it. And it makes the next thing easier. For
0: sure. Yeah. I'm actually in the midst of writing a book. Kind of the first chapter is all about just doing one thing. Like if everything's going to overwhelm you in the day. Pick like that one thing first thing in the morning that you're like, you know what, I'm going to feel accomplished today if I just do that one thing, whether it's feeling, you know, in your heart that you're accomplished or financially accomplished, whatever it is, right? Just pick that one thing. And we even incorporate that in my team to our daily huddles. We actually all go around and say what that one thing's going to be for us. And then whether we accomplish the one thing the day before. It's really been enlightening, I think, for this week. And I also have to give kudos to the fact that you're saying, you know, taxes are solvable problems because that's actually why I got into this field. You know, there's a lot of things we cannot solve in this world, but taxes is not one of them. Like, it is so fun to be able to dive into a topic that overwhelms people so much and be like, there are answers, there are ways for it. And so I love that. That's so cool. And all right, now. What's your view on tax accountants compared to tax attorneys and how would you recommend that tax accountants maybe improve on their communication skills with their clients or the work that they do do you hear complaints about accountants what what are your thoughts there
1: I hear complaints about I hear complaints about attorneys too like I get it so I'm very much a big proponent of teams so I don't know everything. I'm miserable at accounting principles. There's lots of stuff that I don't know. And I think it's really important to know what you don't know. So always prefer working with somebody, whether it's an accountant, EA, a tax preparer. I always prefer working with a team. Again, for a lot of reasons. One, because I think it's more efficient and economical for the client when you can focus your energies on what you know and someone else can do what they do really well and then you can help them resolve their issues. And also, I think sometimes the second pair of eyeballs, right? Somebody might run into something. We had an S-corp issue recently. People who follow me on social know I complain nonstop about pass-throughs and S-corporations are not my bailiwick. But I know enough to be dangerous, right? But that also entails knowing when I need to call in somebody who knows more than me. So we called up the accountants who were working on the 1120S and we're like, hey, Here's our problem. You're the one who's going to have to ultimately prepare this. What do you think about X, right? And we work through it. In terms of like teamwork and communication and working through things, the way I see it is I think that accountants and preparers tend to be the workhorses, right? They know the stuff. Sometimes tax attorneys in particular might be bigger picture people, like people come and they say, I want to start a business and here are my problems. And so we, we work out how that might look. And then we consult with the CPA on the practical side to see, okay, here are limitations that we know. Here are some options. What do you think works better? And I think the flip side is also true. I think sometimes CPAs and accounts and EAs and other folks will see how they know the answer and they know how to get there, but they don't know what ultimately that might mean for the client outside of the non tax reasons. Cause one of the things we obviously don't let the tax tail wag the dog. There are a lot of times when. You want to think bigger picture, right? Even if this works from a dollar standpoint, does it make sense long term? What about the family dynamic? Like for family businesses, for example, what about practical problems down the road that might happen? What about the person who wants to flip their business in two years? Yes, an escort might make sense right now, but in terms of setting that up and all of that, does that make sense if we're going to do that in two years, right? Like all of those kinds of pieces. That's why I I love a team. I love working with a financial planner. I love working with an investment advisor. I love working with anybody who knows more than me (laughs) and who's willing to talk to me about how we can use our collective understanding and experience to fix something for the client or to make the client happy or to make their life just easier. A lot of times on the communication side, where I think things go wonky is the whisper down the lane thing. So. CPA tells the client, oh, you need an S-corporation. That's why it keeps popping up these days, an S-corporation. And that might be a viable option, but maybe they didn't discuss the other suggestions or options. And the client relays that to the attorney or the planner or whoever without context. They'll just come and say, oh, my CPA says I need an s corp.' But they might not explain what happened before or why the escort makes sense here instead of an LLC or whatever. So I love a direct conversation. I would love for the CPA to call me and say, hey, I recommended an escort. Here's why. Here's why an LLC doesn't make sense for this person. Maybe it's Jersey and you know and each partner has to pay a certain amount of a minimum tax and that's not going to work here. I love hearing that explanation. I don't want to contradict anybody without understanding what's the goal and what are the parameters and so I love a team. I love good communication. I think the more the merrier. It's rare, very rare that I will work with somebody where I'm like, oh, I wish another person wasn't involved in this. Usually it is that when the other person is like running away from the team, right? Where we have a discussion and then we found out that somebody's filed two returns in the meantime and not told us about it. That's different. But it's rare that I would ever be in a situation where I'm like, gosh, I wish we hadn't chatted or I wish I hadn't gotten that email. I, I loved having more information, more eyeballs, more voices.
0: Yeah. So what would you say to the solo practitioner out there that's listening and they're like, I don't have a team. What
1: am I supposed to do? What advice would you give then? Find somebody, make friends with people. When I was running my firm, I went out to lunches. I met with other CPAs. We didn't have a CPA at the firm. We didn't have tax preparers that we could recommend. And the great thing about that is if you're doing an amazing job for this client, The next time if somebody walks into my door and they need a CPA because they haven't done their tax returns in five years, I'm like, oh, let me introduce you to Jackie, right? I think that's actually how smaller firms stay competitive. Your team becomes all the people that you work with, all of the investment advisors. You don't have to have a firm that's 500 people to be successful. They're smart people all around you. You just need to make friends with them. For sure. That's awesome. Okay, switching gears just a
0: little bit because I have to get your opinion on this. It's the hot topic right now, which is how is AI and, you know, the advances we're seeing with ChatGPT and whatnot this year, how is it going to impact both of our professions? And what are your views on, do we need to move more to advisory? Because AI can actually do advisory too. I saw you were like 2016 Tech Women of the Year. And I was like, that sounds like an awesome word. I don't know what it is, but... Tell more about that, and tell me about your opinion on this.
1: That was actually from the ABA, the American Bar Association, related to my work in the law. And again, for a small firm, we realized pretty early on that it was important to use technology, whether it was websites, blogs. A great example: my husband, actually, again, he's a techie. He was working on this project where, during the litigation matter, they were bringing in these giant banker boxes to the court, and when something would happen and they knew there was to be an objection, they would literally like file through the boxes to figure out like what they wanted. So he wrote this like really simple program that helped people find things much faster. It was just really easy. And he also did a couple of those for me for projections. If I was back in the day when the estate tax pension was going up and we would do projections for clients. It was changing every year and we wanted to be able to say, hey, in two years, the exemption is going to be much higher and this is what it's going to look like. So he even did a little uh, spreadsheet thing for me where it would actually help me with my projections. So, yeah, I used to use technology. Lawyers are notoriously technophobic. So it was interesting and new that we were doing those kinds of things. Uh, in terms of what that means moving forward in AI and chat GPT, I yeah, had very strong feelings about this. I don't know if you saw my tweet about this couple like about a week ago. Somebody wrote a thing on LinkedIn that annoyed me because actually it's very much like the investment strategy thing, right? It was, if you don't do AI right now, you're lost. Again, going back to our earlier conversations, like, why does everything have to be all or nothing? Like, can't you as a practitioner think to yourself, you know what AI is really good for? Scheduling meetings, returning emails, processing data, things that You can use that don't have to be, I'm going to run my whole practice with AI. I'm going to have a bot answer the phone. I'm not suggesting that people who are doing those things are doing it wrong. Yay for them. But not everybody has to do everything that way. Not every communication that you send out has to be AI generated. I write everything from scratch. I appreciate that other people like prompts. Good for them. It's just not the way my brain works. I do think it is going to be a real issue in the practice. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of reasons, good and bad, again, I think there's lots of ways that AI can transform what we do to make us faster, more efficient. And to your point about advisory services, allow us to work directly with clients instead of being stuck in a fire room looking for things, right? Yeah. I think there's a lot of really good stuff coming out of it. I think we have to be careful because there's a lot of mistrust already because it's been used poorly. Two good examples are that there was an infamous filing in court where the AI made up things. And then the fact that they didn't check it is even crazier to me. But now some courts are requiring attorneys to certify that they didn't use AI. And there are clients who are making the same kind of noise. Like they want you to promise you're not using it. And again, the problem with people doing this all or nothing thing is that the more you lean into all... A lot of other people, including government agencies, are going to lean into nothing. So I think we have to be careful about the way that we use it in our practice. Another good example, since I'm in journalism as well, I'm guessing, but I think I'm right about this. There was an article that I was uh, whining about this morning on social media that the headline suggested that the IRS had just changed the rates for 2023, and it was because the article itself focused on an old article from last year when the IRS put out the rates in 2022 for 2023. And then it was a mashup because it combined that with the extension of the filing deadlines for this year. So they took old information. And I actually don't think that was a human. Like when I read it, I don't think that humans skimmed it. I think it was machine learning that went awry. And I think that it was a bot that put it out and a real person didn't check it, right? So I think even if Mm -hmm. you're going to use AI to do things like write articles and that kind of thing. with your reputation and your name on it at the end of the day. So you have the obligation to make sure it's right. So I think we kind of tread carefully, right? Again, lots of good. I love using it for scheduling. I love using it for, again, email replies, especially short ones. I think that there's a lot of ways that practitioners can incorporate AI into their practice and kind of we are not even realizing that they're doing it on some level. Um, without being the person who's drafting all of their correspondence to clients using chat GPT. And again, I'm not in any way suggesting that people who are doing that are doing the wrong thing. I just think we need to remember that everybody kind of has a different speed in terms of what they're willing to accept and also their client base. It matters, right? Not everybody wants to use portals and links and it's really important to meet your clients where they are and think about that. And and maybe you don't need to be all AI if your clients aren't into it. If they are, then yay. Well, yeah, I think there's always going to be
0: a lot of resistance around it. And just like you said, a lot of like, no, I'm not using this at all. And so I think those people and thought leaders, so to speak, will stick around for quite some time. But I think that there's an efficiency perspective that you just can't overlook.
1: The IRS is using it. They've said so. That's how they do data matching. That's how they're going to figure out who, you know, which large partnerships aren't reporting. They're using it and you can too. I just think you have to be smart about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I know one like super simple thing that I've been using it for that I would hate for when I submit my PowerPoint slides for someone to say you didn't use any AI because I take my scripts and make PowerPoint slides in like five seconds off of my words, right? By using AI. And so being an educator that saves me hours upon hours of time, I'm doing a workshop tomorrow. And yesterday I was like, oh crap, I haven't done the slides yet, you know? And so I go, it was insane, right? Well, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff, but yeah, it'll be interesting how it all unfolds for sure. Do you think, though, that the compliance component of our roles will move more to bots and AI and that we do need to hone in on that, like, communication side of things with people more? I think a little bit. I think, again,
1: easing people into the idea that some of the work may be not even just AI outsourced. That's also a hot topic. Nicole and I actually had talked about that recently on a, I think it was a podcast. I think that there's and chain up. I think that there's a lot of movement towards trying to become more efficient because clients are insisting on it, and the work is just so enormous these days, right? There's so many changes, and it's happening so quickly, and there's so many taxpayers. I think that absolutely, from an efficiency standpoint, you're going to see people moving into more data processing, more submissions. Again, either AI or outsourcing. And again, I think that can be really good for the client. I think you have to reconfigure what you think your value is to the client and what that's worth and whether that's changing too. Because I do think practitioners have to be really careful of if you're outsourcing everything or if you're AI generating all of your returns, can you still charge the same price? Maybe you can, but maybe you can't, but maybe your value is now in something else. So I think constantly looking at what am I giving my clients? What are they paying me for? Because even now, clients are paying for you to put numbers on a page, right? They're paying you to know where those numbers go, what those numbers mean, and what that ultimately means for them. That's what they're paying for. That's still going to be important, even if all the in-between gets taken care of by bots or by other people. For sure.
0: Yeah. So I like that. Revisiting your value proposition, revisiting how you're billing because hourly is going to take you even less time than it used to. And value pricing is probably more important. I always felt bad for a lot of attorneys because value pricing is really hard to do in a lot of that work. But I think with taxes, advisory, that kind of stuff, it's just like slam dunk win. All right. So we're coming up to stop an hour and I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I have two more questions that you can answer quickly. So what is a book or talk that you would recommend that everybody listening go out and find?
1: So it's actually an older book. It's been out for a few years, but The Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. I love that book. And the funny thing is, I don't normally read self-help or motivational type books because a lot of them are too cheerleader for me. And then afterwards, I just feel bad about myself, like, hey, this told me I should be jumping out of planes and I'm not doing that now. So I feel like a failure. I love this book because, so first of all, she's far busier than me, but she is busy. And I think that is important because also I think it's hard when you're reading a book by a motivational type person, if they're not relatable, if it's not something that you can see in your daily life. She's a parent. She's a working parent. She ran a company. She was doing a lot of entrepreneurial-like things. The first time I read the book, still running my firm, a parent, I got it. The gist of the book is that her sister told her that she was saying no to things. And she was saying, no, look at all these things I'm doing. I'm not saying no to things. And so she dared her to start saying yes to things. And again, not like jumping out of planes, but like going to her college reunion and those kinds of things that she had actually been kind of separating herself from because she was Busy. And I love the book. I felt like the message was great. She does the speech at Dartmouth where she talks about learning to say yes and things that are important. I still to rhyme. So after the end of the day, you're like, uh, you know, I'm not a multimillionaire running a, a production company. Um, no matter how many times I read the book, that doesn't happen. But I love that she talks about finding your importance in the world. And I think that's important, and how she understands that people are looking at her, and what is her responsibility to other people. Like, I loved the book. I thought it was great. It's not a series of how tos. It's her story, which she's a great storyteller. If you watch any of her shows, it's Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, all of the shows with Bridgerton. Now she has had to tell a story, and that comes across really well in the book as well. You know, that's funny.
0: Oh my gosh, that brings up a big question. I should have asked you first thing, but first of all, earlier I was thinking of a book when you were talking about something, but have you heard of Rachel Rogers, We Should All Be Millionaires? Check that out because it'll bridge that gap. And she helped become that multimillionaire. And I love her book. I do like motivational stuff, so I hope you don't find it cheesy, but I just really like it. And she's got these amazing statistics about women and minorities and Ways that we can really thrive and become better. So on that note, I was going to ask you what your favorite hack is. But instead, I have to ask you this question that's been on my mind and a lot of people in my industry's mind for a while. We had this kind of thing some up at a conference this year where all these business books were recommended and they were all men that wrote the business books, right? And so then there's this whole thing that goes on Twitter and whatnot about that. I can't believe they only cited men. But in the grand scheme of things, there aren't that many female business writers. And when they do write for business, which I did a lot of research on this, they put pink on the cover or they say it's meant for women. And so to me, I feel like there should be a lot more women authors that are writing to both audiences. And that's what it kind of inspired me to start writing. What's yeah. your view on like that lack of women in the business landscape of writing?
1: Oh, my gosh. We could do a whole nether hour on this because I feel very passionately about this. I have been recently involved in a high-profile squabble over this. So here's my thing. I've already told this my backstory. We've already talked about it. I didn't know any attorneys growing up except there was one at my church. He was a man, but he was a deacon. So I didn't know what he did. I just knew people said he was a lawyer. My entire view of the law in particular was based off of old Terry Mason reruns. That was like the only like lawyer I knew was Terry Mason. And I remember being really little and seeing Sandra Day O'Connor on the, the bench for the Supreme Court and not understanding what it was that lawyers did and not completely understanding what judges did, but thinking she's the only one and they're making a big deal about this. And why is that? And I had an incident, which I talked about before Matt passed, where a guidance counselor at my old school gave an honor that I was supposed to get to someone else and actually said to my face, because it was back in the day when you could do that, we decided to send a boy this year. Which, you know, now would get that person sued, but back in the day, it was just everybody nodded their head and was like, of course we are. And that's how I ended up actually at Science and Math, my residential school. I went home until my mother, I was leaving. I was 13, I said, I'm leaving. and I went to a residential school, which was amazing for me. But I say that to say that so much of the change needs to actually start younger, we graduate equal numbers of men and women nowadays from colleges. We still don't see those numbers in leadership positions. We don't see them on the Supreme Court. There are more women, right? But even that's controversial. In the profession, you don't see a lot of women at the top. I think we had an acting IRS commissioner, but we've never had a female IRS commissioner. No disrespect to Danny Werfel, who I think is doing a great job. I don't even know that a woman was going to hyperfy away for that job. And so I say all that to say that I do think that there is a lack of representation and I think representation matters. And it's disturbing to me that we keep perpetuating this idea that there just aren't enough good people out there when there are, they're just clearly falling through some kind of crack somewhere. Why are 50% Mm -hmm. women graduating from law school and yet they're not running major law firms? Like, why is that? And so one of the discussions I had recently, which was high profile one, there was something that went out that was geared towards a conference and it was all male speakers. And I asked questions about that. There were nine, lest you think it was like three. It was nine, all men. And so when I asked about this, one of the persons who was putting together the conference said to me, but you have to understand at our school, we are graduating 50% of women If you look at at the makeup of our board, whatever, and my response to them was, then why is this a problem? If you're telling me that you were surrounded by this pool of talent, why am I still only seeing these people? And I talk about this with my husband a lot too. It's just that there are a lot of smart women in the world. There are a lot of smart people of color in the world. There's a lot of smart people. I don't think we're giving our women the opportunities to be in... Places where their decisions matter, where they're heard. This is the second time this has happened, by the way, that when I complained about an all-male panel, I've been asked to speak. That's the tokenization. Because in the one, it was a litigation panel. If let me talk about the law for like 30 seconds, you know that litigation is not my thing. Well, you've mentioned several times you don't like it. You don't (laughs) put me on the panel, but you know what? I can name five women who are amazing at litigation. Why aren't you calling them first? what I don't understand. And so when you talk about the books, it's the same thing. I don't think women get those contracts. I don't think that when they think about money, they think to themselves, let me find Lily Batchelder, right? I don't think that they're asking for those people. And one of the things that one of the gentlemen said to me in the beginning of the first panel where I had this discussion, he said, I don't know any women who are litigators. And that kind of floored me because he was an older gentleman. And I'm like, then you're in the wrong place, right? Like, why is the onus on women or, again, people of color and other minorities, why is the onus on them to go find you when we're already, like, scratching, right? We're already saying, here I am, here's my articles, here's what I've done, you know, the teaching side, here are these great CLEs that I've done, Here's CPAs that I've done, here are presentations that I've done. Why are you looking at those and thinking, this was amazing. I want to put you on my list for somebody to ask next. Why instead are you sipping your scotch and looking who's sitting next to you at the club? And that, I think, is something that we really have to change. And again, I don't want to get caught up in there's quotas or numbers. That's not how we change things. We don't change things by saying you have to have one woman on the panel. Although I will say, as an aside, that whenever I'm on a panel, I ask to see who's on the panel. And I think that's important. And I wish more people did that. Because when you say later that you're surprised that it was all men on the panel when you didn't know, I think you should have asked. So I think that we need to give other people a chance, right? And I think that you got that by going outside of your circle. And this kind of goes back to our discussion earlier about networking, right? If you go to any tax event, you can't tell me that you're not seeing women there or people of color there because you are. Why don't you go up and say hello? Like, why don't you say, I saw your speech and it was amazing. I just want to, you know, say who I am. For sure.
0: And so I have found one specific thing that I haven't really been able to talk about yet that I think would help with the baseline of this problem. And that is more men mentoring women and minorities. I've heard a businessman specifically tell me just a couple of years ago, they, they won't mentor women because they're worried about that the woman might be attractive or something. And I'm like, it's BS, okay? That is full us back. That is holding everybody back. Get over your physical attraction to people and mentor them because men have had more opportunities and they know more about like sponsorships is something that I'm just getting into that I should have known about
1: years ago that men in my industry have been capitalizing on. I had a conversation with Catherine Kaminsky. I don't know if you know her or not. She is a vice chair at EY. And when I was talking to her, she started talking about sponsorships and mentorships. And I was interviewing her for a podcast and I actually stopped her and said, can you explain to me the difference? Because you don't talk about that with women, right? And she explained to me, that's how you get to be partner. And I don't think that we have those discussions. And a lot of that is because it's unsavory, right? We're not supposed to be pushing to get ahead. So you can tell I'm getting very animated. But I hate how this becomes like this us versus them type of thing because it's not. I don't
0: want anything to be anyone against anybody. I just want us all to support each other.
1: That goes back to my point earlier about, I love this profession. I love the tax community. I have so many people that have helped me along the way and have been so gracious and kind. And when I think about who it is, I think about the person first. I don't think like, how many women do I know? How many men do I know? But I'm also out of my way in my circles to broaden my circles, so to go at a networking event. And it's funny because everybody thinks I'm an extrovert, but I'm actually oddly like I'm loud, but honestly, I love snuggling on my sofa with my kids. But I'm making a point to go up to people at conferences and say hello and try to introduce myself. And if people send me emails and say, I had a question about like, how do you get into writing or how do you get into text or how do you get into law? I try really hard to respond to them because I think it's important because people helped me when I was uh, coming up in the profession. And it's crazy to me that people don't want to help other people because back to my point from before, the law can be adversarial. But otherwise, I think in the tax profession and also journalism, it's a community and there's a benefit to making us all better, right? Like, why would you not want to grow the profession? Why would you not want to see other people succeed? And it's funny because when we were talking right before the podcast and I told you, I said I had written two things on my paper and they were don't struggle and say thanks. And that was like the two things that I wanted to make sure I said. And this is actually like a really good spot for that is the one is I do think people on their way up feel like there's this idea that you have to like struggle, right? You have to work really hard and you do, but it's not all about struggling or surviving. There's a method of enjoying what you're doing while you're doing it and also looking for ways to succeed without feeling like it's always a grind. Kind of tangential to that, too, is this notion that, you know, say thank you more. I think sometimes when we talk about opportunities, to my point earlier, too, that, you know, when people say that something was good or that, you know, you did a really good job or this is an article I've shared a lot, my first reaction used to be as a young professional would be always to say, oh, but let me tell you, why this wasn't my best or thanks. I got lucky like this whole thing. And my mom, we were talking about this one day and my mom says, when somebody says you look nice, the answer isn't, I got this on sale. And so I tried really hard to like incorporate that more, like learning to say thank you when people say good job. So that other people see you taking credit for things. Cause I think that's so important, especially for women. I think. It's important to say, like, as a woman, thank you. I worked really hard on this. Or thank you. I think it's important. But also this idea of not struggling. And one of the questions that you had said when we were talking about pre-interview, I think one of the things you had suggested is, like, what kind of quotes and stuff that you loved. And there were two. And I wanted to say the one, which is because I love Dolly Parton. And anybody who knows me knows I love Dolly Parton. And she said, find out who you are and do it on purpose. And I loved that. I love it so much. And I think it's important in the profession It's how we grow too, right? Find out what your niche is, find out what your place is and do that. That means the other pieces should follow. They don't always, I think we have to struggle a little more sometimes and I hate that again. That's why we don't struggle. But I think, you know, you keep pushing and be grateful and also be supportive. And that's why I go on podcasts. It's why I try to talk a lot. I want the profession, especially younger people in the profession to see, especially younger women, Just see it's okay to be really grateful in your position, but also to believe there's more work to be done because there is. Awesome. I love it. Okay. So you said two quotes. Was
0: there one other quote you wanted to make sure and say?
1: Well, my other one is very similar, actually, um, which is a Maya Angelou quote, which she said, my mission in life is not merely to survive but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. And that's the other thing that I try to remember in my daily life that, you know, again, goes back to making sure that you appreciate what you have while you have it, but also you share it with other people in a way that's meaningful. And sometimes that means on Twitter, making jokes about deadlines and understanding that we're all in the same boat together and hopefully doing it in a way that we build community. Because I think, again, that's what I love about the profession is I think the tax community. It's an amazing community to be a part of.
0: Yeah. I think another word that I heard as you were speaking just now is courage. You know, have the courage to ask. Uh, I actually just wrote an article for Forbes Finance Council about courage, and it was totally on topic of stuff I would normally talk about. But I realized like courage is what got me to where I am today. If I didn't ask or ask twice, you won't get people's attention. And it's probably nothing against you. It's just they're
1: busy. Right? And so all it's just ask, right? Oh, yeah. I like I, you followed up with me a zillion times with this interview because when something happened, like my dad's in the hospital, I have to cancel and whatever. And you're like sitting with me, in the house. I, I think sometimes we get really defensive, right? Oh, I, I, this person must not like me or they didn't send my email in time or whatever. I didn't return that phone call. And I love that. You have to ask because you know what? Sometimes maybe it might be that they even forgot about you, but not on purpose. It's because their parent is sick. Their kid is sick. There's something happening. There's an escaped killer on the loose. I was telling you that we had that. You don't know what's happening in somebody's life. And that goes to what I said in the very beginning is that at the end of the day, we're people. I'm not just an attorney. Like I'm a mom, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm lots of things. I'm a wife. But and those things and I really love tasks. Yeah, we're people. Awesome. Okay. So do you have a preferred social media platform? It seems like you're pretty
0: good with Facebook and Twitter. Where do you prefer that people follow you? So that's also
1: a tricky question. If you had asked me a couple of years ago, I'd be like, oh, totally Twitter. Because I... I'm still there and I am still active, but you know, it's not what it used to be. There's been a lot of issues, but I can be found pretty much anywhere. I find that there's more, and I know my kids hate that I say it, but I don't want to love Facebook, but I do find it to be a really good place for exchanging information and ideas because it encourages dialogue and not all social media platforms do that, right? Twitter, you can only respond really quickly, but you can actually have like, threads of dialogues much easier on Facebook. So I'm on Facebook at Text World. I'm on, you know, Twitter. I've been posting more on Instagram lately just because I find that kind of fun. Yesterday I posted, so it was the, it was the anniversary of 90210, the original Beverly Hills, 90210, with hateful the love. And if you recall, if you watched that show, you will recall that Dylan's dad went to jail for tax evasion. It was 23 counts, actually. And he only served like a year. And then he got out and he was killed. It was a firebomb, but it was really FBI, witness protection program, whatever. But that's like the fun part of tax on Instagram. So I'll post pictures or whatever they are, or deadlines. Like, so Insta, I find to be more instant. Facebook, I find for conversations. I miss the old Twitter, but I'm still trying, you know. LinkedIn, I think is a great place to get information from other people. I don't find the dialogue there particularly engaging Every now and again, somebody asks you a question, but really, it's a little bit of the keeping up appearances thing. So everything's very buttoned up on LinkedIn for the most part. That's awesome. I completely
0: agree with like your analysis of all the different platforms. And if you haven't already, which you probably haven't because you have no idea about this, but I have a Facebook group just for accounting from influencers that would be called accounting from influencers. We have 7,000 accountants that are like, blah, 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 blah. So join us there, Kelly. It would be so fun. So if you're missing like that interactive feel, that's a great spot to be for sure. All right, Kelly, I really appreciate your time today. This has been such a wonderful discussion. I wish I could ask you a billion more things. Maybe once things settle down in 2024, we'll have another round.
1: That would be awesome. I appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks again and take care. Thanks, you too. This episode of the Concierge CPA was brought to you by Tax Plan IQ. Elevate your accounting practice, bring unparalleled value to your clients with this exceptional tax advisory software. Your journey toward becoming a tax advisor starts here. for listening to the concierge cpa hosted by tax plan iq we believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world if you are a successful accounting firm owner or influencer who would like to be on this program please visit jackie meyer cpa.com j-a-c-k-i-e-m-e-y-e-r cpa.com to apply please share this on social media and rate us so we can continue our good work. Join our Facebook group called Accounting Firm Influencers or connect with me on most platforms under Jackie Meyer CPA. Thanks for being accountable to transforming our industry today.